want to share with you this morning a strategy that I believe God has for us here at Grace Point. The mission of our church is not changing. I would argue that the mission of every Bible-believing church is, is already set. We may have different uh, pretty ways to phrase it, but it's making Christ-like disciples. I hope that the scripture on the walls to my left and my right, and your right and your left, I think that's how that works, I hope that it's not been there so long or you've seen it so many times that you forget its existence. God has put in His Word the mission He has for every Bible-believing church to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all the things that He had commanded to us. We also have the great commandment to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. That is still the mission and will be the mission because we are a Bible-believing church But I believe God is calling us to embrace a strategy to help us accomplish that mission. God has ordained Grace Point to be a place where every single one of us can not only uh, connect to the mission, but connect to each other. This great commission and great commandment is Christ's mission for His church. But how do we fulfill that mission? I believe that we need a common strategy together, and we're going to talk about that for the next couple of weeks. It's as if we could see Grace Point, or us as a body of believers, is kind of like your hand. For most of us, we've got five appendages sticking out of our hand, uh, four fingers and a thumb, and it's all, you know, united in the hand, but it's going different directions. could be of, of unity, but still having different directions. And you can have somewhat limited impact. I guess the Three Stooges would see, you know, some good impact that you'd make like that. But there is a far greater impact when we pull together and we have a common strategy and focus and we can have an impact on the world around us in a greater way, even though we are still in unity, but with a common vernacular and a common strategy together. You may be like me that sometimes it's easy to see the mission, but when you think about where do I start in everyday life, it can get a little bit more complicated. It's... Obvious to me that God is calling us as a community of faith to give us handles on how we can strategize together to carry out the mission He has given to our church. Far too many times it can seem like it's an overwhelming thing to jump in at Grace Point Church and begin to figure out how do I get involved or how can I be a part of a mission and how do I know if the team is winning and all these kind of questions that can come up. And it can leave us kind of feeling a little bit lost. I've shared this story with some of you, but it bears repeating. I want all of you to be able to identify not only with this story, but you have probably a better one in your own life. I'll never forget, I was in seventh grade at my junior high school in Oskaloosa, Iowa. And the athletic director made an announcement over the loudspeaker system for all seventh grade men interested in football to come to the auditorium immediately. I heard that call for all seventh grade men And uh, it's kind of an oxymoron, I think, sometimes, but I was confident I was a full-grown man at seventh grade, and I made my way to the gymnasium. I sat there on the bleachers as my athletic director called out to us what football was all about. He borrowed a speech from another great football coach and held the football in his hand, and he said, men, this is a football. But then he began to insult our intelligence and say, this is a football helmet, and these are shoulder pads, and these are knee pads. 
and began to instruct us in the elementary things of how to put this gear on. And I quickly fell in love with football because I loved everything about it, just about everything. It was the only place in school where I could go out and I could hit somebody, knock them over, and I'd be praised for it, and I didn't get in trouble. This was great. I mean, this didn't happen in school. I love this. And, and I quickly saw that I loved dressing like a football player, talking like a football player, doing what football players do, but there was this one piece of football that I didn't like. My coach gave to each one of us a big D-ring binder that looked like homework. It looked a lot like math or geometry or something. It was a playbook. And so I found a great home for this playbook. It was in the bottom of my locker, and I didn't look at it. And I'll never forget the very first huddle, the very first play of my very first football game, which was a short-lived career in football. I was in the huddle, and the quarterback called out the play, red right, 33, dive. At that moment, it was like a lightning bolt from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet. Panic went through all of my body. What in the world is red right, 33, dive? I had no idea what the plan was, what the play was, what was supposed to happen. And so I turned to the guy next to me in the huddle and I said, what's red right 33 dive? And he slapped me on the back and he said, wise heart, learn your plays. So I did what everybody would do. I pretended, oh yeah, yeah, I know what it is. I had no idea. I thought, when in doubt, the ball's got to go to me, right? So the center hiked the ball, the quarterback turned to do a handoff, and I thought for sure it was going to go to me. I collided with the fullback, I caused a fumble, the other team got the ball, went down to the other end zone and scored a touchdown on the very first play of my football career. And to this day, I'm convinced that is why I'm not in the NFL. That's the only reason. But I was terrified. I, I had panic. I didn't know what the plan was. You may or may not like football or have a story similar to that, but all of us can think of a time when we didn't know what was expected. We didn't know where we were going or what should the formation look like. It's because of this common identification we can have that I think God is calling us to have a strategy together to carry out the mission He's given His church. So today and over the next couple of weeks, I want to talk about celebration and connection. Everything we do here at Grace Point will involve this simple two-part strategy. I believe that as we commit to celebration and connection, we will begin to experience the abundant life that God has for every one of His kids. This morning I want to briefly unpack the two main aspects of this simple strategy, celebration and connection, and then spend the remainder of our time focusing in on celebration. As the next couple of weeks we'll talk more about connection together. The simple strategy is this, as easy as I can put it, here at our church, at my church, at your church, at Grace Point, there are two key corporate opportunities for us to celebrate God's presence. Then this isn't the totality of every place we celebrate God. We can celebrate God all over the place in lots of gatherings, but there's two key corporate times, Sunday morning at 9 a.m. and Sunday morning at 1045 I want to congratulate you on getting in on the strategy, and you didn't even know it. Some of you didn't even want to get on the strategy, but by sitting here, you're already participating in half of what I believe God is calling us to do. Many of you know that we have a South Campus that's worshiping right now. So in some ways, there's three key corporate times of celebration. Sunday morning north at 9, Sunday morning north at 1045, and Sunday morning South Campus at 1045. But nonetheless, this is a key part of how we celebrate God together. Next, we see that at our church, at your church, at Grace Point, we celebrate big on the weekend. On Sunday, we celebrate big. 
But we connect small all throughout the week. On Sunday and many other days of the week, we connect in smaller gatherings. So how do I get connected? I'm glad you're here in worship today. But I need to be honest and tell you something. If all you experience at Grace Point is just sitting and standing and being in corporate worship here, you're only getting half of who God has called us to be. As good as worship can be here in this this gathering, as good as it can be to be with a large group of people, it's not all who God has called us to be. Some of us like to hide in a larger gathering, and I understand that, and we'll talk more in the coming weeks on, on why we do that and maybe some ways to fight that tendency. But you're only getting part of who we are. We connect big, or excuse me, we celebrate big and we connect small. It's probably important for me to share. When I talk about connection group or connection class, this is not new news for Grace Point. Throughout the decades, we have had gatherings like this from our very inception, from our very birth. We've called them a number of different things. We've called them Sunday school class. We've called them Bible fellowship groups or classes. We've called them small groups. We've called them Bible studies. And and all those are good. And, And to be honest, I don't really care what you call them. I'm not arguing that you change your vocabulary. But what I'm saying is, for a common understanding, when these connection groups or connection classes operate, it gives us another dimension of who God wants us to be together. So jot this down. At at our church, at my church, my connection group or my class embraces three common goals. Now, many of you are a part of a connection group or connection class of some form on some time, and that may not be new news to you, but this may be some new news for you. I am trying to rally the troops, and they are responding in strong fashion and strong support, that they would embrace three common core values or goals in every one of those connection groups or classes. Jot this down. It's to care for one another, to learn from God's Word in each other, and to serve somebody besides ourselves. When we do those three things... It's amazing what happens where they intersect. You see that kind of triangle in the middle of those circles? It's caring, learning, and serving. And where that connection takes place, I believe that's fertile ground for discipleship. Not foolproof. I mean, you can participate in that and still be just as disobedient as ever. But it begins to tenderize our heart and help us be in a place where we can truly be a disciple. And we can begin to embrace the mission of helping someone else to follow Jesus. We'll talk more about that later. But this morning, I want us to focus in on that first part of celebration and connection, celebration. Take your Bible and turn with me to Psalm chapter 27. It may not be important to you, but it's very important to me that we understand these are not just like buzzwords or good ideas or just some kind of phrase to get excited about that came from Brady's head or anything like that. All of this is rooted in God's Word. I want you to see that the Bible you hold in your hand or that's in your phone or your device, it is screaming out these very principles and truths. Look at Psalm chapter 27. We see here in this psalm that celebrating God is the greatest need of our life. If you're taking notes, jot that down. Celebrating God is the greatest need of my life. It's answering the question, why do I need to celebrate God? Well, why do I need to be excited and celebrate and give Him praise in His presence? Well, one, it's the greatest need of my life to do so. Well, where do we get that? Look at verse 4 of chapter 27. The one thing I ask of the Lord, the thing I seek most, is to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, delighting in the Lord's perfections and meditating 
in his temple. This was the number one priority for David. He knew that staying connected with God was the key to everything else in his life. You see, in all of us, there is a gaping hole that we try to fill that void in our life with all kinds of things. For some, we try to fill it with money. Others, we fill it with physical pleasure. Some, we fill it with, with a job or, or some kind of identity that we can gather. Others, we try to fill it with approval of other people. But the thing is that every single person has been created by God, and you are hardwired. The only way to be fulfilled, the only way to fill that hole in your life is by God himself. And so... Why I need to celebrate God, why we do that corporately together, is it's the greatest need of our life. It fills the void that we have, whether we realize it or not. You can't fill it with religious activities. You can't fill it with a mental assent to a certain collection of beliefs. It's in celebrating, praising, and worshiping our God that we can be fulfilled. Next, we learn in this psalm, look at verse 5. We see that celebrating God makes us secure in a troubled world. For he will conceal me there when troubles come. He will hide me in his sanctuary. He will place me out of reach on a high rock. You don't have to look very hard to see that the world around us is troubled. Whether you look at the global picture or our nation or our city or your school or your family or your own afternoon, there's enough turbulence to get us off track We don't have to be afraid. We can be secure in the troubled world because of who God is. He's the one that keeps us secure in His sovereignty and in His power. Also notice that celebrating God brings Him close in a very impersonal world. Look at verse 8. My heart has heard you say, come and talk with me. My heart responds, Lord, I'm coming to you. See, every weekend when we gather, this is our top priority for these celebration gatherings, that we create an atmosphere and an opportunity for you to personally connect with God. George Barna is a Christian research guy, and he observes that half of all people who consistently attend church services in America, so of all those who say, I attend church on a regular basis, half of them, they report that they have not had a personal encounter with God in more than a year. In more than a year. So if this room is normal, and like most of you look normal, some of you are kind of like not normal, but most of you look normal, like half of you would not experience God at all in over a year. Something is tragically wrong with this statistic. When we gather together, it is to focus on who God is and to celebrate His goodness. We can have an encounter with God if our focus is on God. But if our focus is on something else, we encounter something else. See, celebrating God gives me direction and purpose in an aimless world. Look at verse 11. Teach me how to live, O Lord. Lead me along the path of honesty, the first part of 11 says. When we celebrate God, when we give Him praise, when we worship Him, it does something to realign us and give us some purpose in our life. Best-selling author Gordon MacDonald hits on this when he writes, If my private, personal world is in order, it will be because I regularly choose to enlarge the spiritual center of my life. In other words, when I make celebrating God a priority, it's amazing how much order comes into my life. It's amazing how much purpose I have, how much mission I feel like I have in my life. 
So you can turn that upside down. If you feel like your life is scattered and crazy and you're being pulled from all ends, if you feel like you don't have much purpose, there's not much meaning when you wake up in life, you need to celebrate God. Make that the focus of who you are. And when we celebrate Him, He brings order. He brings purpose. Amen? Church, that's good preaching. I don't care who you are. That's the truth. That's the Word of God. He is worthy to be praised. And when I focus my attention on Him, it brings everything else into order. Celebrating God also protects me in a dangerous world. David celebrates God's protection in verse 12 and 13. Do not let me fall into their hands. He's talking about his enemies. For they accuse me of things I've never done and breathe out violence against me. Yet I am confident. Underline that in your notes or in your Bible. I am confident that I will see the Lord's goodness where I am here in the land in the living. While I'm here in the land of the living. I can be confident because of his protection in my life. David already reminded us that we can be secure in a troubled world. The fact that I'm secure. But I can also be confident in that fact because I know it is his sovereign hand. The enemy cannot get me off track unless I choose to cooperate with the enemy. But when I obey God, I can have confidence that no weapon formed against me will prosper. Amen? And I can celebrate God because of his protection in my life. Finally, celebrating God gives me patience in a very impatient world. David concludes this portion of the psalm in verse 14 when he says, wait patiently for the Lord. Be brave and courageous. Yes, wait patiently for the Lord. We live in a world of instant gratification. If I can't have it now, it must not be worth having. Celebrating God lifts us out of that kind of frantic obsessive, compulsive attitude, and it puts us on the mountaintop of perspective that God can give. It reminds me again that God's timing is much better than mine, much better than yours. Now those are six very good reasons why I need to celebrate God, to praise Him, to make it a priority in my life. That's the why, but, but I think we often struggle with the how. Okay, I, I need to celebrate God, and that's what we're going to do here as a church. How do I do that? Well, first I want to start by telling you how not to figure out how to celebrate or worship God. Uh, there's a few friends that I'd like to come help me, and I've briefly talked with, with a number of them. I'd like Pastor Edgar to come on up here. He didn't know what I'm going to do, but I love him, and I believe he loves me enough to trust me. Pastor Rex, come on up here. Stand up here with me. My wife, Carrie, come on up here. Brad's there. I think I see you in the back. Come on up here, Brad. Very good. Now, just stand however you want to. Stand across here. They're going to sing a quartet in four-part harmony. No, I just like to see everybody but Edgar freak out about that. Actually, it'd probably just be me and Pastor Rex not knowing what to do on that. But here's what we do sometimes when we think about worship or celebration. We begin to look at people and how they celebrate God. And we say, well, I must have to do it like they do it. You know, one of my favorite things about Carrie is she is never boring, ever. This is my wife, if you don't know that. It'd be important for you to know that as I hug her close. She is excitement. I've described our relationship. I am the boring train tracks that just go straight, but she is the roller coaster of excitement in my life. And so when she worships God, it is emotional, it is exciting, and it is very rarely standing still. It's all over the map. And I love that about her. 
One of the things I love about serving with Pastor Rex is I don't know that I've met very many people who are so positive, who is the eternal optimist. And I don't know that I've met many people who can, can honestly, as I look into his eyes, I really believe it is true. Uh, it's not my idea. I may have done it different, but I'm all in. I'll help. That is an amazing quality. I love that. And I see that in Rex when, uh, did I say Pastor Edgar? Did I call you Pastor Edgar? Okay, very good. That Pastor Rex. What I love is I see that in worship in Pastor Rex. It doesn't even cross my mind. Well, is that his favorite song? Or is that the favorite tempo? Or is that the favorite uh, volume level? He, I'm all in. May not have been the song I choose. I'm in. I'm, I, he's the eternal optimist. He's positive, And you can just see that oozing out of him. One of the things I love about Edgar, he is talented. It, it hacks me off that he didn't just play one instrument. He plays like all of them. I can't find one that he can't do something on. And, and I, I can't dream up something in our planning sessions when, when he can't go, oh, yeah, we can do that. We can make that happen. And, and, and on top of that, he's just got a suave about him, even in his accent. I love his accent. And I try to mimic it at home, but I can't do accents. And it always comes out like Arnold Schwarzenegger, every accent I do. And it's just not as cool as when Edgar does it. And so I see that in worship. There is talent. There is excellence. There is a suave A about him that is just so good. And, and I love that. And, and then Brad. Brad and I uh, went to college together, and uh, I won't, I'll spare you all the college stories, but I've been able to watch Brad longer than I've been able to watch uh, these other two guys. One of the things I love about Brad is he is not afraid to be who he is. Brad is a strong, quiet man. But when I watch Brad worship, he has a depth about him. Now, you need to know the way that Brad and Carrie worship are like the other opposite ends of the universe. Okay, so like Carrie may be swinging from a chandelier somewhere and Brad is just like tapping his toe. But when I see it, I'm like, this is right because that is who God has created in Brad. And he enters into worship and just the way God has created him. Now, here's what we do in worship. We begin to think, oh, I need to celebrate God and praise him. I know why I need to do it. And so we begin to say, I have to do it like somebody else. And when my focus gets on them, I can go, oh, I'm so boring. I'm not exciting like Carrie. I can't be exuberant like her. I just must be a loser. Or I get a bad attitude and I get my eyes off Jesus and I start saying, is she even real? I mean, it's just we're like all over the map and what's happening there? Or, or I look at Pastor Rex and I say, you know what? I just can't be that optimistic. I want to be that positive, but I can't. Or with a bad attitude, as Pastor Rex whispered in my ear, uh, just say, is he lying? I mean, nobody can be that positive. I just want to know, like, the real dirt. I just want to get him aside and say, just tell me the real thing. Or, or I could look at Pastor Edgar and go, I don't have anything on his talent. Who am I to lift my voice in praise? Who am I to lift up a banner of worship? I can't do what this guy does. Or in a bad attitude, when I look at him and not Jesus, I can go, here goes the show. It's all about him. Let's just watch his concert. And I miss the whole thing. Or I could go to Brad and I could say, man, I, I am not as stoic and, and pulled together as Brad is. Because when I worship, I'm clumsy. I may get excited. I may step on my foot and fall over and it just doesn't come out. And Brad can just have a way about being confident in who he is and in his quiet strongness. It's just profound. Or in a bad attitude, I could say, where's his emotion? 
his toes tapping, but I don't see him jumping around. Thanks, guys. You can have a seat. Appreciate it. You see, God's Word teaches us about how to celebrate Him, and it has nothing to do with personality type. There's seven words I want us to look at in rapid fire from the Old Testament to see that the Bible actually talks about how to praise God. And it doesn't matter if you're any of these personality types or maybe you're just weird like me and you can't peg one on yourself. Let's look at the first word. Hallel. It's the root word where we get hallelujah. Hallel means praise. Yah means God. And in the word hallelujah, you've got the letter U right in the middle. I don't want to ascribe some kind of false meaning to this, but it's interesting to me of how that works when we have God and praise and when we're in the middle, something happens. We don't have to do some kind of spelling gymnastics to get to the meaning of what God is meaning in, in worship and celebrating Him. This word literally means to boast, to rave, to celebrate. Is the word celebrate a description of how you worship God? Or would it best be described as reluctant, bored, ritual habit, full of preferences? Or is there celebration? When was the last time that we began to see celebration in our worship? Now this word also gives us another tier of meaning, and it's to be clamorously, we just begin to fall over ourselves. In foolish ways. I love that. That makes me feel good. That's probably my worship style. Is making a silliness of myself. When's the last time you fumbled over yourself, almost being silly or foolish in the way you worship God? Now, now hear me. This is not a case for being emotional. If you are a reserved, stoic, quiet person, then how you worship will look different. But friend, if you get more worked up about your sports team... You can be foolish about rooting your team on or more excited about a promotion at work or more excited about some kind of uh, adjustment in your life that you've been waiting to have happen or a new boyfriend or a girlfriend or a new life situation that's happening. You get more revved up about that or you get more revved up about the news and what's happening or what should be happening that's not happening. And then that's not how you praise God. Something else or someone else has become your God. It should evoke emotion to the way we've been created out of us. We begin to see that there is a life-changing power of God that demands celebration from us. The Bible commands us to celebrate. Let's look at another word. Yada. This word is used to describe meaningless chatter. Yada, yada, yada. No, that's not true. I just thought it would be fun to say that. It's not what it means at all. It literally means to worship with extended hands. You see, when somebody asks you to lift your hands in worship, they're simply asking you to do a very biblical form of worship. This has been uncomfortable for some and for a few, controversial of uh, not so sure that I can lift my hands or I can do one or the other, but both. Now I feel strange and weird. But it's interesting to me how we don't get all worked up about lifted hands in other contexts. My daughter is nine years old, and I remember it wasn't that long ago, and she is five or six, I'd be away on a trip, I'd come home, and she would see me at the entry of our house. She'd come running to me with her arms stretched out, and she'd say, Dad, you're home! Now, I didn't have to stop and consult a dictionary or a psychologist to figure out what this meant. 
This just meant, pick me up, Dad. Wrap me in your arms. I missed you. I want to see you. I want to be close to you. Let me get up on your lap. And so I did what any dad would do. I said, now just stop right there. You're being extra emotional, drawing attention to yourself and embarrassing me. Just knock it off. No. It warmed my heart. I said, get up here. I wrapped my arms around her. I squeezed her tight. I sat her on my lap. And we began to talk about how we missed each other. Friends, a form of worship when we lift our hands can be an opportunity to say, Dad, I need you. I want you. I want more of you in my life. We begin to see that worship is given a very clear picture in Scripture. The next word, Baruch or Barak, means to declare God the origin of all things and literally to bless Him. This term demotes a tone of humble posture, kneeling before God in celebration. Sometimes we can be all about the lifted hand, but never humble or kneel our heart before God. This is what happened when Jehoshaphat spoke and heard the word of deliverance that God gave to them. And in the exercise of dependence, he was humbled on his knees before God. We need to humble ourselves before him. Next, look at the word tequila there. Now, tequila is not to be confused with tequila. Tequila has a very different kind of celebration that ends in a hangover, and we're not about that. Tequila means sing. This is to lift our voice in praise. It is biblical for us to sing. This isn't just something we came up with that, hey, Edgar can play the piano, so let's just put this into worship. No, the Bible talks about lifting our voice and singing to God in worship. Now, I love the thought that it's not just one place or twice. It's an indispensable form of praise. Over 300 times throughout the Bible, it commands us to sing to the Lord. As one has observed, if the only birds who would sing were the ones who sang best, the woods would be very too quiet. Some of us say, I don't know if I get into worship through music. I'm not that good of a singer. One of my favorite things is to hear people lift their voice to God in praise who are tone deaf. I'm serious. Because it jars me to think, well, that didn't match the song, but their heart matches God. It's just like going to a kid's piano recital. The parent is thrilled that their child is playing the piano. Nobody cares that it's chopsticks over and over and over. They're excited about what they're doing. When you lift your voice to God, regardless of your talent, it is honoring to Him. It's freeing to us. Zamar means to praise with an instrument. I need to inform you that there are not holy instruments and unholy instruments. Every instrument we use and have the ability to use can be bring glory to God. Now, we could use them in other ways that don't bring glory to God, but they have the ability to bring glory to God. Whether you play the trumpet or the violin or the piano or you use your vocal cords or you use the ten-string instruments on the end of your wrists and you clap together, it is a way to bring praise to God. It is biblical. It is rooted in God's Word to celebrate who He is. Next. Torah means to extend hands, not this way, but to extend hands in thanksgiving. If yada is an expression of praise and to be accepted by God, Torah is an expression of offering ourself to God. Psalm 100 says, enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. 
The sequence is interesting. To give thanks, to sing, and then to bless Him in those words. It's very important when we offer ourselves an, an offering of thanksgiving and we lift our voice, we verbalize our praise to God and humble ourselves in blessing Him. He is honored. Finally, Shabbat, which means to address in a loud voice or to shout. Second Chronicles, where Jehoshaphat leads God's people into celebration. He's celebrating over the promise God has given to deliver them from their enemy. And verse 18, it says that some of the Levites stood up and praised the Lord in a very loud voice. Spontaneous shouts of praise are biblical. Now there you have some words from Scripture that talk about how to praise. Don't get fixated on being like Edgar, or being like Rex, or being like Carrie, or being like Brad, or being like Brady. God wired you the way He wants you. But you and I cannot be fulfilled unless we celebrate Him. So I can't think of a better way for us to respond to God's Word today than to not just look at why, and not just look at how. Let's stop talking and let's start doing it together. But I want you to notice something when we worship, when we celebrate God. It's not just about filling space and time. When I get off of my agenda and I focus on God and I begin to reflect and respond with my heart to how God has talked to me, it does something with my priorities. And it aligns me in a place that I can now be an instrument of Him. We're going to discover over the next couple of weeks that in order to do this great commission, we have got to give ourselves to corporate celebration and praise together. And we'll talk in future weeks about how we can connect together. But would you stand with me? And in the way God has wired you, not like the person next to you, you focus on God. Let your heart respond to who He is. And let Him order your priorities this morning.